again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is, let's see, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And he said, Who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Thank you. This is the word of God. I'm a reader, and I know a lot of you are readers. You like to read and, and think and consider the written word. And I'm, I'm captivated by the skill and the art of writing. You know, the whole process is interesting to me. I've got some daughters who, who write, and uh, what they tell me that they go through and the edits and, and just all that just fascinates me. But, you know, what is it that makes a good book? What is it that makes one book a classic and the other just drift off into Never Never Land, right? What, uh, why is it that some books pull you in and almost from the opening paragraphs you can't put it down and yet some, after about three pages, you go to Facebook and start flipping? What is it? What, what, what is it that, that makes some books so fascinating and so compelling and others not? A writer pulls me in I think when I have hope that his writing has purpose and meaning 
that he's going, or he or she is, is going somewhere, that there's, that there's purpose in it. There's a lot of different purposes or reasons to write, right? You can write to provide information to someone, to give knowledge, impart knowledge. Some people write to express their feelings, and it, it's a way, it's kind of cathartic to just to let those feelings out. So some people's purpose is to express their feelings. Some people have the, the ability to write and explore an idea, and that's how they kind of write themselves clear. But some write to persuade, to argue, to present a position and try to get their reader to agree with them. It is very clear that John, in writing his gospel, is the latter. He is writing to persuade Jesus of two themes. And if you read the Gospel of John in light of those two themes, you'll see that he comes back to them over and over and over again. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, we tend to just read for information. That, that's kind of the lazy man's way, but that's kind of the default way, right? I just want to learn more. John did not write his gospel just simply to learn more, for us to learn more, to provide knowledge or history about Jesus. No, he writes for two themes. He argues that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Listen to John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31, because he is going to tell us why he wrote the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, so it's not a history. It's not chronological. It's not anything to do with simple knowledge. Because John said he, he did many things that's not written in this book. But why did he write this book? These are written... John writes, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Do you see? He doesn't leave, you know, so many times we, we get together and we talk about books and, and, well, I think it means this, and I think it means that, and I wonder why you wrote this. John didn't want any of that to happen in his gospel. He said, no, these are why I'm writing, that you might believe that Jesus is a Christ. And believing, he may have life in his name. So everything he writes in this book from beginning to end is making a case. He's arguing, he's persuading like an attorney would argue for his client. And he provides substantial evidence over and over again about the deity of Christ and the importance of belief. He pleads with his reader that they might believe. Now, we come to John chapter 8 that Amanda read. Listen for these themes. Verse 12 and then again in verse 24. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am 
the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the one. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So you see how he comes back to his two major themes of the gospel of John. Now, he highlights these themes over and over again that I am the Messiah. And in our passage, he says, I am the light of the world. He, persuade, he is persuading in John 8, you and me, the reader, that Jesus is the Messiah predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's very, very heavy in Old Testament prophecy here in John 8. All right. This morning, I want you to see how he tells them that he is the Christ. Now, let's back up a little bit. Take 30,000 foot view. If you remember in John chapter 6, do you remember the statement that Jesus said, I am the bread of life? He is speaking and referring back to how the I am God provided bread in the form of manna. In the wilderness. To Israelites. He was looking back at that. And he says I am the bread of life. He, God rescued Israel from starvation. By providing the bread. And now Jesus said I will rescue you. In the same manner. In chapter 7. We've talked about the feast. And he says come to me and drink. Now he is pointing back to God providing salvation or rescuing Israel when Moses struck the rock and water poured forth. They were in the middle of the desert, million, two million strong, not a lot of water. They were scared, they were frightened. God told Moses to hit the rock and water flowed. Jesus says, Come to me and drink. I am the one who will provide soul satisfaction for you. Come, ye who are thirsty, and I will give you a drink of living water. Now, in John chapter 8, the theme continues when he says, I am the light of the world. He is saying that I am He. I am God. I am the one who will lead you and guide you and protect you as I did in the wilderness with the Shekinah glory of God and the holy cloud that led them and, and protected them in the wilderness. And I'll show you in a minute why it's so clear that that is what he is saying here in John chapter 8. I am he. I am the one who will lead you. I am the one who will protect you. I am he. So today I want to show clearly that Jesus declares that he is the Messiah and the one the Old Testament points to. We're going to look closer at those last two because they happen right here at the Feast of Booths. Now, you hear this called the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes, same thing. Or uh, 
it, it's a Sukkot. If you're familiar with the, the Jewish calendar now, this is the Feast of Booths, and it, it commemorates the time in the wilderness. Okay, so these last two are very specifically commemorating that, those feasts, that feast commemorates the time in, in the wilderness. And there's a lot of significance in the fact that Jesus said these words during this time in the temple. And I want to show that to you. So I want to take a bit and, and linger on these two statements. Come to me and drink. I'm the light of the world. First, come to me and drink. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, uh, through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we looked at this passage before, and so we're going to repeat a few of the things, but we're going to go in much more depth. Here in chapter 7, John chronicles the events of this feast. His words come to me and drink directly related to the celebration of the feast. The feast lasted, this feast of booths lasted eight days. Okay. One of the ceremonies of the feast was, had a water element to it. The first six days of the feast, the, well, actually all seven days of the uh, feast, the priest would start in the temple and lead a procession of priests and uh, Israelites through the water gate down to the pool of Siloam, which is just outside of the gate. And the pool of Siloam was a pool where springs, uh, the spring of Sion, or Gion, I'm sorry, was the major supply, water supply for Jerusalem. And they, this pool gathered the water for them. Now, in, in uh, Israel, when they were referring to a spring or running water, not, not stagnant water, you know, a pool of stagnant water, but a spring or of running water, they would call it living water because it's good to drink. It's better to drink. And so they used to call the water of this pool of Siloam living water. And so the priest would take this golden pitcher and, and pull out some water from uh, the pool. All the time, people are reciting two different passages. First is Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Psalm 114, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water. 
the flint into a spring of water. Again, referring back to the wilderness when he struck the rock. Okay? There's also some evidence that the feast was calling on God to bring rain for the crops and provide for them just like he did in the wilderness. Okay? Now, they would then take the water and the procession would go back through the water gate and to the temple and then they would pour water on the altar for the morning burnt offering. And when this was happening, the procession would say, save us now, save us now. They would perform this ceremony one time every one of the first six days of the feast. But on the seventh day, they would perform, they would circle the altar seven times, thus marking its completion during the Feast of Booths. This ended the water drawing ritual. It was not performed on the eighth day of the feast, the great day. All right? Now, Jesus, it would appear, when he said, Come to me and drink, said these words on the eighth day. The day after the water part of the ceremony had closed. No other water there. And Jesus says, Come to me and drink. The impact on those who heard him had to be enormous. What? For seven days the priest had drawn water from the pool of Siloam, the pool of living water. The water was poured on the altar while the pilgrims chant to God, Save us now! Save us now! Now on the eighth day, when there is no other water, Jesus said, Come to me and drink. From me will come living water. You will well up with living water. If you are thirsty, come to me. You see, the ceremony was talking about the dependence of the Israelites upon God, both in the wilderness, but now even for their crops. Dependence. God, send the rain. God, you provided the water from the rock. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, don't look back at the ceremonies. Look to me. Look to me. Look to me. I was reminded of the woman at the well. You remember back in John chapter uh, 4? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him and will become in him a spring of water living up, welling up to eternal life. Do you see? Jesus says, I am the source of living water. Jesus says, your prayers have been answered. You say, save us now, save us now. I am here. I will save you. Salvation is found only in me. 
Now, from our vantage point, we know that he is the rock who is broken on the cross of Calvary. The one who is broken to give us life, to provide for us living water. The rod of justice fell on him, the rock. And it's through him we have life in his name. John will drive this point home further on the cross. When he writes about the cross, two different things. You remember that when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that he said was, I thirst. That's not only a physical thing there. I think he is pointing to the fact that he is there identifying himself with us. In our sinfulness, in our brokenness, we are thirsty for that which we cannot find satisfaction. He is identifying with us that we all must go to the living waters. The only one who will ever be able to quench our thirst is Jesus. But he was identifying with us at that point in time and saying, I am thirsty. While on the cross, Jesus bore all our sins and all our iniquities, all our fears, all our guilt and remorse. He was poor and meaty and thirsty. Now he says, come to me, come and drink, and I will satisfy your thirsty soul. We find mercy and rest, but in that day, he, there was no mercy for Jesus. No one would come and rescue him. He became lost like us, lost and alone and thirsty, so that he might provide for us living water. Further, do you remember right at the end of the account when the soldiers came to break the legs of the, the uh, people who were being crucified and they broke the first thief and then the second thief but when they came to Jesus you remember that his legs were not he was already dead so they, he, they didn't break his legs but just to make sure they plunged a spear into his side. Do you remember what came out? Blood and water from his side came forth living water. His death, because of his death, he poured forth that living water so that we might have life. We find life because Jesus went to the cross for us. It's a beautiful picture. Come to me and drink. But the second statement he makes is in verse 12 that Amanda started with. He says, I am the light of the world. Our, our text says that he said these words when he was in the temple treasury. You see that in verse 20. Okay. Now, the temple treasury, the geography a little bit of the temple, um, I'm not all that familiar with the temple. So you might not be either. So let me just bring you up to date. The temple of the treasury was located in the court of women, which was the second of the temple courts. It started with the, temple, uh, the court of the Gentiles. Okay, Gentiles could not go further in to the temple than the court of Gentiles. So there was a place of worship for Gentiles. Then further in, there was the court of women, and women could not pass beyond this court. Okay? 
the temple treasury was in the court of women. There would be a steady flow of pilgrims and people bringing their offerings for the temple into this temple treasury, the court of women. It was a busy place, people giving their offerings to God. But the fact that Jesus said these words in the court of women is very, very significant. Because during this feast, there was another ceremony in addition to the water ceremony. There was the ceremony of the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple. At nightfall, each day during this feast, they would light four huge candelabras in the shape of a menorah. Okay? These candles, these four huge candles stood 75 feet tall. That's five stories, as tall as a five-story building. Okay? They had these huge bowls. Even for wicks, they used the, the priest's old clothing that they didn't want anymore. Those were the wicks of these bowls. So you can tell when they light those, these clothes uh, that were uh, in these bowls of oil. It was huge. And it says that the whole temple was lit up. But not only that, writers of the day said that all of Jerusalem was lit up. That there wasn't a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that did not see the light of these giant candles. They burned all night long, and they may have burned all the feast long. People disagree on that. So, either all night long, or all day long and all night long. I don't know. Okay. But this part of the celebration was the most joyous, the most happy time that they had. Um, In the Mishnah, they write, Pious men and men of good deeds used to dance before them, this candelabras, with burning torches in their hands and sang before them with songs and praises, the Levites on harps and on lyres and with cymbals and with trumpets and with other instruments of music without number. So it was a concert. And people danced and sang. We need a little more Jewishness, right? Um, I said that in a Presbyterian church, didn't I? Okay. Um, with the torches. Uh, and they set up grandstands here in the court of women so people could come and enjoy the celebration. Now, it seems like this celebration of the illumination of the temple had two Two facets to it. One was looking back and one was looking forward. Okay? The looking back portion was looking back and it reminded the people of their time in the wilderness when the Shekinah glory of God was in their presence. These lamps reminded people of the cloud and the fire that had accompanied them in their wilderness wanderings. If you remember, the cloud appeared when the Israelites came up to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was was, uh, right behind them. And the cloud appeared right between the Egyptian army and the Israelites to protect them. So the, the army couldn't get to the Jews. And it gave them time to get across the Red Sea, right? 
So the, the presence of the Lord. We also see that the cloud and the pillar would lead and guide the Israelites on their wilderness wanderings. Later on, we see that the Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. If you remember, they so disobeyed God that God said, okay, well, I'm going to stay true to my word. I will go, I will send you to the promised land and you'll take the promised land, but I'm just not going to go with you. And the people were so dismayed They pled with him and Moses interceded for them. God said, okay, I'll go with you. And so the Shekinah glory was there in the tabernacle. Later on, we know that the Shekinah glory was in the temple. The people in the court of of women were reminded of the presence of the Lord in the fiery pillar and the cloud. Okay? Now, it was also looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the predicted Messiah, because you find that in Zechariah 14. Zechariah points to a day when God will live among men and rule the world. Verses 6 and 7, on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, But at evening time, there shall be light. God had promised to send a light, the Messiah. God promised to send him to renew Israel's glory, to take them from bondage for all time and restore their joy. So this was the the celebration of the illumination of, In the temple, the illumination of the temple. Now, with that background, imagine what the people around Jesus would have thought when he says, No, I am the light of the world. Perhaps the candelabras were were burning brightly behind him. Jesus said, I am. And the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember, every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit up. But Jesus says, I am not the light of Jerusalem. I am the light of what? The world. This would not have skipped past them. They would have known that Jesus is saying something very, very significant here. They would have understood immediately. Jesus clearly is saying, I am the God of the Shekinah glory. I am the God of the cloud. I am the God who is with our forefathers in the wilderness. I am here. Amazing, outlandish claim if you're not God. But he ties his identity with the God of the wilderness. I'm the Shekinah glory. Now something that we might not see in the, in the English test, but when he says, I am, does that ring a bell to you? Do you remember the bush that Moses 
stood before? Who should I say sends me? And God said, I am. You think if you were a Jew and knew that story, that that would resonate with you? You would know exactly what Jesus is saying. I am. He identifies himself with the God of the bush. The God of the Old Testament. I am the one. You find seven, seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We've already had seen one, I am the bread of life in, in chapter 6. Here is the second, I am the light of the world. He'll go on to say, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In days to come, we'll see those. But he's using this term, I am, very, very purposefully because he identifies himself as the I am. As we go deeper and deeper into this chapter, we see that John will argue for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, in several ways. But there is none more clearly than the fact during this feast, during the temple, the ceremony of the illumination of the temple, that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is very purposeful. In the way he writes his book. He writes so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. He wants you to believe. When I was thinking about this. I, I thought back to John chapter 3. You remember when, when uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. In verse 19 he says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. I just want to join with John and join with Jesus to encourage you to believe. As an unbeliever, let me say, believe and trust that Jesus is the Son of God. But guys, believers need to believe it too. And we need to be reminded once again that Jesus is the light of the world. If you're a believer, as the light He provides for you, just like he did Old Testament Israel. He provides for you. He promises his presence. He is here. And he's near. And he's never far away. You are not alone. You're not forgotten. You're not abandoned. He is here for you. And sometimes, as believers, we need to know that. We need to be reminded. We are not alone. He promises His presence. He promises to protect you. 
Just like he protected the, the Israelites in, in the wilderness from the Egyptian armies. He will protect you. He protected them with the cloud of, from the fierce heat of the desert. And the fierce cold of the night in the desert. He protected his people. He is protecting you. He protects you spiritually. There is a whole world that's going on now that we don't understand. The spiritual realm. We don't understand it, but we know that He protects us there. Like Peter, when, when Jesus told Peter, Satan has wanted to sift you, but I'm not going to let him. My friends, you won't be sifted. Because He's protecting you. He sought to destroy Job. Our enemy sought to destroy him and Jesus says, Nope, you're on a short leash, buddy. Nope, you can only go so far. He says that to you, for you and for me too. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what spiritual struggle you're facing. But I know that he protects you. He is there for you. And even though it doesn't feel like it, even though he feels like you're abandoned, he is there. He doesn't protect us from all the bad things that might happen to us. For he knows that we need those for his purpose. And, and I, I know that there's a lot of sorrow and a lot of pain in our lives. But let me just remind you that God doesn't waste anything in your life. Nothing that you go through is wasted. He's there. So He protects you. But not only does He promise His presence and protection, just like He did in the wilderness uh, those many years ago, He also will guide you. Just like He guided the Israelites throughout the desert, He is guiding you in the midst of confusion He's not far away. He will guide you according to His pleasure. He is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Your Word. We are amazed of the richness of the many ways that you point to yourself as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Lord, you know we struggle at this because it's 2,000 years ago and so many things seem so strange to us and, and we don't have the Jewish background but I thank you that, that you brought others uh, along so that we might understand the richness of your claims. And today, may I just ask, as on behalf of all of us here, that you'd help us believe. Help us to have faith and trust that you're with us that you protect us and that you guide us. Bring to mind and heart the truth that you are indeed the light of the world.
This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the table, Jesus, the call remains. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come and drink. It just reminds me of what we do at the table. We eat and we drink. He reminds us once again that it's through His broken body and His shed blood that we find remission of sin. It points us to His broken body that shed forth blood and water. Come to Him with your deepest longings and He will fulfill it. It is said that on the the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed after He had given thanks He took the bread and He broke it. And He said, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way he took the cup after supper and he said this is the new covenant of my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me he then said as, as often as you eat this bread and he, you drink this cup you proclaim his death until you come again until he comes again the table is open to all those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ who look to him alone not their own works not their own goodness not their own ethics but look to him alone for eternal life if that's you this morning